So welcome lovers of product to another episode of the Product Love Podcast. Today I have David Schwartz from Wix with me. David, why don't we kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Hi, Eric. Great to be here. I'm mostly an entrepreneur in my background. I started coding as a kid. I actually worked a little bit in coding when I was in high school. In Israel, the army is mandatory. Went to the army, went to school, left school to start my first startup, which was a map of the internet. Very nice startup, very sexy, very typical end of the 90s startup, did not succeed. Then I started another company called PeerUp, which still uh, works, which is infrastructure for ISPs. And then a third startup that's called Joggly, which was a music search engine. And after Joggly, I was offered to join Wix as an advisor for six months by a friend who's one of the founders. Six months passed, a little more time passed. It's been eight years so far. Today, I'm the VP product of the company. That's it, I guess. Awesome. Now, if I remember correctly, you had some interesting uh, entrepreneurial experience when you were really young, right? Can you tell us about that? Well, I guess refer to me trying to sell fireworks in the Independence Day. Yeah, that's a funny episode. Fireworks were banned in Independence uh, Days in Israel, but plenty of kids tried to sell them. I found out a partner. He had the stash of the fireworks. I was yelling around, so I was the only one who was doing marketing, actually. And we sold a bunch of those fireworks. When the police came, he just took my stash, which was minimal. And I got another stash from his. The business model works. We did a lot of money. <laughs> That's great. So it's kind of entrepreneurship starts from an early age, right? Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. You think you were just born that way, right? You know, did it, it, it was that it? Were you born an entrepreneur? You know, I don't know. I think my parents did brought me up to get a good job. So entrepreneurial doesn't come from home. I had a grandmother divorced my grandpa and started her own business. Maybe the genes come from there. But the of the matter is that, you know, when I was growing up, especially after my army, which was the end of the 90s, was a period in Israel where I think it was the... In Israel, we have more startups than any other place in the world, I believe. And that period, the end of the 90s, were the period where there are most startups ever. So I think anyone who was close to the industry in some state or another, and had a little bit of entrepreneurial nature, tried. And I tried, and it worked. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit in more detail about Wix. Can you give us a little more detail about how the company has grown and where it is today, just for anyone who doesn't know? I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the product, but maybe a little yeah. less so about the company and how big it is and how quickly it's grown. So the company exists for 11 years more or less. I joined a little bit more than eight years ago. It's a very fast-growing company from every perspective you'd like to think. The revenues, the market value, the number of users, the number of employees, it's all growing something like 40% a year, which is very, very quick growth, especially for a company that is cash flow positive. So yeah, when I joined Wix, we had, I think, 12 million users and 130 employees, more or less. Today, it's 2,500 employees, 130 million users. The company did IPO in 2013. Now it's worth more or less $5 billion. Yeah, very, very rapid growth, which creates also challenges. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. And not only challenges, but you have experiences you can share with others, right? Yeah. So so talk to me about that. I mean, talk to me about like Wix really consciously thought about how the culture could shift and their concerns with it, say, you know, first passing that 100-person point, right? And they, yeah. did, they did a cool thing there. Can you talk about what they did? Yes. 
to begin with, what you must understand is that, you know, there is a stage in a company's life, and it mostly happens when you cross the 100 people, a benchmark. You know, until 100 people, everybody knows everybody. Wix was in the office with a huge balcony, and basically the company was managed from this balcony in like random talks over there in the balcony. And the company was based heavily on values like innovation and ownership. It was a true startup in the true meaning of the word. And once they crossed the 100 employees and they felt the company grows, they felt that something threatens this startup atmosphere, that the company becomes like less of a startup and more of a company, which for them, the founders, was a very frightening thing. So what they did, they hired five entrepreneurs. Myself and my former partner from Jogli were, were two of them. And they didn't tell us what to do. They just came to us and told us, you know, hang around the company, learn what's going on, and come with us with certain suggestions of how to proceed forward. Now, one of us, my, my, like my partner, my, my CTO in Jogli, he just became part of the management. And it didn't work out. Eventually, he left the company because he wasn't able to fit the culture. Some of us just became part of the organization, more or less. One of us came with this cool idea and spin off the company and, and started a startup that's, that's called Monday. It's very successful today as well. As for myself, I had, back at the time, Wix had 12 million users. Even then, it was a long number, especially for someone like myself who likes working with empirical data rather than guessing when it comes to work with product. So I really wanted to do something in the core of Wix. But on the other hand, to be fully honest, my character, definitely back then, but also today, was not such of a person that can work in a corporate as part of a standard corporate. So I wanted to eat the cake and leave it as a whole, basically. So what I said is, I'll start my own startup in Wix. So I found out the software engineer that was quitting the company because he wanted to go and work for a smaller startup, which is something very common, by the way, in Israel. And I met him in the corridor. I told him, I know you quit, but don't quit. You want to work for a startup? Come work for me. I'm building a startup here. So that was my first recruit. Another software engineer I found from this guy who also didn't want to work for a company, was working as a freelancer with Wix. So I put him in my team as well, brought another guy to do operations and started basically a small startup inside the company where all the functions were there. I had my own R&D, my own designer, my own UX. I was the product. And we started building things for Wix. I had a very ambitious idea called Wix Connect at the time. So that's why the company, we called it a company inside the company. So that's why the company was named Wix Connect. It wasn't a company from a legal perspective, but just an independent organization. So basically, what we found out is that we can develop this way very, very, very quickly and basically continue having all the advantages of startup atmosphere of like five, eight, 10 people's organization inside the company. So yeah, I continued with this team doing more and more projects for Wix. I did the first Wix blog, then I did the app market. I did software for Wix support called Wix Answers, which we today sell for our users as well. And in 2013, where we were crossing the 500, 600 benchmark, and we knew we were going to be 1,000 very quickly, we basically duplicated this model for the entire company. So today, Wix is actually broken to more or less 30 organizations. We call companies. Each such company develops a product within the Wix platform. They're all totally independent. Each such company has head of company, and a chairman from the Wix management. And together, these two people, the chairman and the head of company, can make all the decisions regarding the company. So it creates a very, very independent environment where the values of ownership and accountability and independence, you just say them, they actually happen. 
And it has problems as well. It's not easy for such two companies to cooperate with each other because each of them is a startup entrepreneur that wants to succeed with their own company in nature. So dependency is a word that, that frightens us heavily and we're trying to find technological ways to go around it. But all in all, I think that for us, the advantages when it comes to velocity and innovation are such that that's the model that works well for us. Yeah, and at that point, so you have companies, but you also have this concept of guilds too, right? So yes. talk to us about that. So again, if we go back to my first organization, the R&D of which was worried about me because they say, you know, you have your two developers. You guys are going to run away and do wild things. We don't care you have independence, but, but we want technology in the company to have like common base run. So I told them, you know, that's okay. You can work with them professionally. Like tell them how we do server coding in Wix and how we do, we do front-end development in Wix. That's totally cool on my book. And I'll tell them and I'll manage them. And when we duplicated the model, we expanded it to every profession in Wix. So basically, if I have today a company, let's say Wix Stores, which does our e-commerce product, and there is a server developer in this company. So this server developer reports to her team lead, which reports to her head of R&D, which reports to her head of company. And that's her family, and that's where she develops, and, and that's the guys who give their, like, th- these are the people who give her tasks and, and, and everything. But she's also part of the server guild. And in the server guild, she has someone that professionally mentors her. They can steal her for a week or two weeks every month or every quarter, depends on the needs of the company, and build the company infrastructure in a way. And same works with every profession in Wix. Product manager in Wix, for that extent, is a part of a company. There are product managers in Wix stores. They work on the Wix stores product. That's their home. That's their family. That's their startup. But they're also part of the product guild which teaches them how product management is done in Wix. So in a way, you have in Wix total freedom as to what to do, but there is a Wix way of how to do things, and the Wix way of how to do things is run by the guilds. So talk to me a little bit about how the guilds and companies worked from the standpoint of what was good about it, and one of the things you mentioned that was bad was dependencies, right? And maybe you can go into that a little bit more detail. Well, I think that every model has its pros and cons. I'll give you a, a live, like I'll give you a, a real life example of what has been the challenge with this model. So, you know, when you do, the Wix product basically allows people to build their websites, right? And there are various kinds of websites. So a website can be an e-commerce website, which in that case, you're basically building a store. One of the basic features of a store product is giving your users the ability to sell online. And this means basically you have to integrate with a payment gateway. Super cool. So Wix stores starts first and they integrate with a payment gateway. The first payment gateway was PayPal. Second payment gateway was Stripe. Then we start a new company in Wix, Wix Hotels, a product that allows hoteliers to build their hotel online and their booking system and their management systems. Now, as you may guess, hotels also need to charge, like hoteliers also need to charge money from their visitors, correct? So they also needed to integrate with Stripe. And then came what I called the Stripe effect. Bookings was next, you know, people who who like, you know, your masseuse or your fitness trainer or whatever, booking online. So they have to charge payments as well. So And you may think, you know, that they'll take the existing code. No way. You know, it's small startups. All they think is running forward, running forward, right? So, and, and you would think they will talk to each other, but they didn't have time for that as well. So they're basically all running, and I, and I found out that I'm, doing, I'm integrating with Stripe again and again and again and again, which is like the ultimate stupidity. Now, how did we solve it? We started a new company. We called it Wix Cashier that will handle payment gateways for all the companies inside Wix. 
which is actually a good solution, but you know, that, that's only one problem. So first problem is basically that you do many things again and again and again and again in each company, which is okay. It saves you dependencies and saves you hustle and allow you to do things yourself. But from the Wix perspective, it's not so efficient and it hurts velocity. So this was an issue we, we tackled a long, a long time. And what we do right now actually is we, we try all kinds of solutions for that. And the solution that worked for us eventually was a technological solution where basically if I'm doing something today, I'm writing it as a platform with APIs. So any third party can connect to it. So let's say if I do a coupon feature in Wix stores, I will not write the coupon features for Wix stores. I will write an independent component with APIs that everybody can hook to, including by the way, our users who want to code on top of their Wix websites. And then every other company in Wix can basically take this code and integrate it to their system. When you have to do it for a third party outside of the company, it makes you do the API and documentation properly. So that's how we solve the problem of reusable things. But yet there are certain points in the life of the company when companies has to collaborate. We had a members feature where basically, you know, it's a website. You want your, your members to log in and view restricted pages or log into the blog or log into the stores in order to save their credit card and address. So it's a feature that's, that's going to be consumed by many other companies. And there was a question who owns that. So eventually what we do these days, we pick up a single owner and they work with all the other companies as customers. But fact of the matter is that these are harder for us as an organization than those projects that are done within the smaller companies. It's easier for us where, in, where we do a project that is more independent in nature and less dependencies. We're becoming better independencies, but still it's something we hate and we try to minimize as much as we can. It's less fun. So, I mean, obviously the, that's the con, right? So talk about the yeah. pros, because obviously you did this for a reason. It's a very innovative approach. It's, it's not something a lot of companies do. So there has to be a lot of great benefits too. I'll start with the basic facts. We are all startup entrepreneurs in our background, almost all our management. We literally have no idea how to manage 2,500 people's company. We do know how to manage small startups very well. So that's what we're good at. Now, we could have brought this very experienced blue hair CEO to run the company, but we would lose our edge and we didn't want to do that. So first of all, that's a model that we know how to handle and that's its first advantage. Secondly, I think that when it comes to velocity and innovation, it's, it's just so much better. So even with, the, even with the dependencies, which with APIs, it sounds like you've done a better job of eliminating or at least making them less of an issue. But even with yeah. those dependencies in the early days, you were getting more velocity out of a lot of these small teams than, than you were getting with like a bigger development organization or di- bigger product organization. Totally, totally. I think the advantages were very clear from day one. The speed where 10 or 20 people startup runs compared to the speed where huge organization runs and also the ability to take decisions. It's true that these companies do not need committees or management meetings or stuff to make a decision. The head of the company makes the call and they're running. It saves so much time. Think how much time we're spending on contemplating. And I also think the quality of decisions is better. I don't believe in good products created by committee. I don't think there was ever a good product created in this way. So put you on the spot a little bit. Do you say, you know, versus the other way of doing things, you think this is like two times better, three times better, 10 times better for you guys? Literally, I think it's the difference between making what we do possible and and, and impossible. So it's infinite compared to zero. I'll tell you another thing that's a huge advantage of this model. You know, we'll talk probably 
during this podcast on what I think is a good product manager. But you know, I look at recruiting product managers in a way like a product manager. So when I became VP product of Wix, I kind of said, who are our best people, who are our worst people? And I found out the characteristics of them. And there is one group that stands very clearly as a great group, and these are ex-entrepreneurs. I don't say this only because I'm ex-entrepreneurs. I'm saying ex-entrepreneurs are very good product managers. Now, you cannot attract these people to work in this big corporate. They will not come. They will either go and start another startup or join a very small startup. The fact that you have this magic of eating the cake and leave it as a whole, working in a company like Wix with more than 100 million users, that, that's a public company and that is a big company with lots of users on the one hand, but still working in a small startup, 20 people inside the company, this makes the company very appealing to certain type of product managers, by the way, and also software engineers. And these are people that work very well for us. So I think that's also another gain you get from the small. Now, that is interesting. Compensation different? Like, are they compensated based upon the performance of their company or is it more just compensated based upon the overall performance of Wix? I don't think compensation is a major issue when it comes to deciding, definitely not when it comes to where to stay working. Sometimes it's, it's an issue when you negotiate on, on someone joining, but it's never the big issue. I think the biggest advantage Wix has is this atmosphere of constant innovation rapid development, super velocity, startup atmosphere, and independence, ownership, and accountability. For that type of people, independence, ownership, and accountability is a must. I'll speak for myself. I couldn't work in another environment. I just couldn't. There is no way I could work in a place where I have to, where I think something is good and then I have to take it to a committee and we have to discuss it like for hours and hours and hours. And, and sometimes politics makes a decision rather than the right product or everything. I, I just couldn't be part of that. And I think we've been able through the years to bring very strong people here and make them, and they did exceptional thing for us because we gave them independence, ownership, and accountability. I love it. I, I love the model. I think it's very interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about you, you know, as yeah. a guy who's running product. I know in the past, you've talked a lot about delivery-oriented product management, which I think yes. fits really well into, you know, the style of company Wix is with the separate companies yeah. there. Can you talk more about delivery-oriented product management as you describe it? Yes. Let's start with the facts for a second. In our industry, software industry, tons of projects never get into delivery deadline at all. And if there is something that everybody who works in this industry has experience with, most of the projects are not finished on time. So basically, you know, the software engineer tells you it's going to take me three months and then you're telling your boss it's going to take you four months. He's going to the management and tell them it's going to take five months and eventually it's delivered after six months. And that's that. And, and, and we got to accept this as a fact of life. Now that is something I'm not willing to accept anymore. I want, when someone tells me I'm going to do this in this and that time frame, it's not flexible. They're going to deliver in that time frame. And that's what I, what, what I call delivery-oriented product management. It's a type of product management where product management says this is going to be released July 1st. It's going to be released July 1st. And how do you make sure it's released July 1st then? Because we're so, all known. Let's, let's talk about these questions for a second. So this means basically we are not flexible regarding the time frame. So if you cannot compromise regarding the time, what can you compromise? So in theory, you can do slappy job. You can compromise quality. Either the quality of the code or the quality of the UX or the quality of the product itself. But let's say that not only we say we are not flexible when it comes to the deadline, we are not flexible when it comes to our quality standards as well. We will not sacrifice performance, code quality, level of UX, user experience. We will still maintain them to the highest standards of Wix. 
So if you cannot compromise on the time frame and you cannot compromise on the code, another option is to hire tons of people and bring them more and more people in so you can make the projects on time and in high quality. But fact of the matter is that when you add more people to a project, not only in most cases it does not speed up the process, it actually slows it down because then you take some of the engineers that had to work on project actually and make them become teachers for these new people. And, and, and I don't think it's an effective way to add more and more people to a, to a project. So if we're not flexible on the HR as well, what is left? And what is left is the scope. And I think that the core of delivery-oriented project management is scoping. I don't like the term MVP because I don't think that is relevant for the Wix environment today. So I rather use the term phase one. I would like a phase one that has the minimal scope. And if you see you don't stand in the deadline, drop things away of the scope. And I think this does two very interesting things from my experience. The first one is trivial. You are releasing on time when you cut the scope. But I actually believe that it actually improves the product. And on this, you know, there are those moments in your life that changes you. I had a moment in my life, it was in 99, I think, or early 2000, that changed my life as a product manager. I had a startup at the time. And I remember it to this very day. It was the first time I opened Google search engine. Now, for those of you who are old enough to remember this moment, before Google, we used another search engine. I personally used a search engine called Alta Vista. There was quite a few, right? I think there was like a dozen. There were tons of them. Alta Vista was my favorite. And there was this blue screen in Alta Vista and they wanted to be a portal. So there was all this shit around the screen. Yeah? More or less in the middle of the screen on the left side was a very small search box. And that's where you would search. And now you came there to search, but they were overwhelming you with all this crap, right? Hey, I used Yahoo as the same kind of thing, right? It was a same kind of crap. Same big kind of portal crap. directory service. Yeah, yeah, you know, and then came Google, white screen, big search box. It's written Google and there are two buttons, search. And because even Google cannot resist the urge to add something that you don't need, there was then feeling lucky thingy. And that's it. The first, you know, I, I'm a great believer in the emotions you are experiencing when you use a technological product. I felt like I'm breathing. Literally, I was breathing air. Now, they will tell you that Google had this crazy algorithm that brought best results. Oh, bullshit. For the first few months, the results of Alta Vista and actually compared it to were better than Google's. Still. And yet I was using Google because of this breathing air thing. Now, that's what happens to you when you cut the scope. There are less features that you don't really need. You cut the non-important features, that's easy. Then you cut the important features. That's, then you cut the very important features. The basically remember is the core that is actually what your users want. I think your product is also better. So I say scoping, proper scoping, if done properly, does not only allow you to develop faster, which is critical, it's also allowed you to develop better products. It makes you think, what's the core of your product? What's important? What's less important? What are the business goals of the user? What does they want to achieve? What, what are the user's needs? What are the user's emotions? And answer only these things. Things actually create better products. Yeah, I, I think I saw a quote from you, you know, lots of preferences in your product. You're afraid and lazy to decide, so you let the user decide, right? That, that is, yeah, you know, that's, that's another thing that, again, there, there are two philosophies here in a way. I call them the Android and the iPhone philosophies. In the Android, both are good products, yeah, but in the Android, you can customize everything and decide everything. And the user can do basically whatever they want. While in iPhone, they decide for you, which is sometimes annoying. 
I don't like in my iPhone the fact that I cannot change the default browser or the default maps. But there is something I like about the iPhone attitude where product management takes a stand and say, oh no, that's what's right after learning the users deeply. You need to intimately know your users for that. But if you intimately know your users, you can make a call and then you create more minimalistic and nicer and, and better products, I believe. Because you know, it's the wrong thing to do to sacrifice. Let's say you have a feature and then you have 0.3% of the users that need to customize it. Adding this customization ability makes the product for the other 99.7% less of a good product because there are more features. It's more overwhelming. You, when they'll need to do something, they really need to do that to look for it. So I think you should be, as a product manager, have the guts to take a call. What's important? What's less important? I call it be the no man rather than the yes man. A yes man is a guy who says yes to everything. You know, there are calls from the support. I don't say don't listen to calls from the support. It's probably the best usage of your time as a product manager to listen to support calls and see what your users are saying. But don't automatically do whatever somebody asks you in the support. And definitely don't automatically do whatever someone asks you in management or in marketing. Think if you really need to add this to the product. Moreover, we are always thinking of adding features to our product. How about taking features out of your product? If there is a feature in your product that your users are not using, so you constantly make the experience bad for them, and it's more support, and, and the code is more complex, it's, you know, it's bad. And yet, we don't think like that. We don't say, I'm going to make a new version with less features. And, and that's basically what Google did in the beginning. They did less features. And that's awesome, apparently. It's a better experience. So I'm saying, you know, work your data, learn your users, talk to your users, all this, and you, there's nobody who will do it more than I. But after that, don't think only on what to add and what is missing. Think also on what you have in your product that you can take out. And it drives me nuts that products are not thinking this way. That's awesome. I do like that approach. I like the thought of, you know, keeping things simple, right? Not distracting your users. I mean, yeah. it's... A, I can see from the Yahoo days, right? The idea was you'd go there, you'd be thinking about searching on something and then some article would attract your attention and you like click on it and then you're, yeah. you're distracted, right? And you're taken away from the purpose you were going there, you know, by a shiny object. It's like, you know, squirt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I can definitely see that helping your users. And then over time you're like, oh, I will go to Yahoo, but now I'm going to go there for my news, right? As opposed to search, which Google yeah. would be the default. So it just, it changed the perspective of how the product was being used in some way. They weren't getting that added value of, oh yeah, not only are I going to use this for search, but they're going to do this other thing instead, because I was going there from search and there was a huge amount of distraction. I just stopped going there for search and would go to Google, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. By the way, there is usage for portals as well, but not in your search product. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, even yeah. to this day, as much as I try to program myself not to do it, I'm still using Yahoo News, right? I go over to Yahoo because the news is right there. It's easy. Google News, which I've been trying to get myself more to use, I have to go like, you know, it's just, it's a different experience. I have to make sure I'm going to news.google.com or whatever it is, yeah. right? <laughs> I end up searching for it and getting news on Google. You know, it's just I different. Find, yeah, yeah. I find that more and more time passes, I consume more of my news for social networks, which is not a good thing, but such is life. Yeah, the problem I see with that is just you get a slice of the news, right? You, you get a slice of the news based upon the people you're connected to on social networks. Not only is I'm getting a slice of the news, it's kind of filtered, you know? It's colored in a very specific type of color. Like I'm watching the news through like this very red sunglasses or whatever. But you know, paper news, you know, there was once in the ancient days, in the Middle Ages, there was newspapers made of paper. 
I don't get to see this at all anymore. And in the late Middle Ages, you would actually go to a newspaper's website and view the content. I, I don't, I, people I don't just stop doing that anymore, especially in no. I see my young products, they, 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 the, the thing of opening a, website, a newspaper's websites or a newspaper's mobile app is for them, you know, sci-fi. I'm always shocked when I see someone pull out a newspaper. And some of my tech friends still do it now. Like it, it gives them some nostalgic joy, I guess. I'm not sure. But I, I guess it, in the one benefit of that is you do get, you know, all the news that's fit to print, so to speak, right? You can see more of a perspective. Yeah. I found that using Twitter, I, I follow some people that maybe there's one overlap. Like they, they have a lot of passion around user experience or product, but then say politically, they might be very different than me. So I get a little bit of that overlap yeah. and... I find myself pushing myself to read a little bit of the news from that perspective, just so I can understand, right? I, I found that Twitter doesn't make me happy, so I just left. <laughs> there is that problem definitely too, especially yeah. when you read Twitter the makes, comments. Twitter makes you angry. It's an interesting, interesting product. What would, what would you change about Twitter if you own that as a product? I don't know. I, I wouldn't even start guessing. I'm such a nut Twitter user these days. So I cannot, I think Twitter is a great product, don't get me wrong. I think that for me specifically, you know, this brings us again to the subject that's, that's near and dear for me, the emotions of your users that, that work with your product. You know, not necessarily the goal of the people, of the product managers of, of Twitter are to create this like positive emotions around Twitter. Maybe, you know, if they're getting angry or very much emotionally involved, not necessarily in a positive way, they're more engaged with the application, which is a very good thing about Twitter. For me, I found that the interactions I do in Twitter, I just mostly fight with people in politics over there. And, you know, I do this in Facebook as well, but less. In Facebook, it's a mixture, you know, of family pictures and fights about politics. For me, at least. Let's yeah. turn our attention to attributes that are most important in product managers. So you hinted at this yeah. early. What, what makes a good product manager? What attributes do they have? Well, you know, at the end of the road, a good product manager is the guy who creates great products. The question is how we predict that. It's a big question. I think it's the, for me as, as a person who thinks probably my most important task today is to make sure the product managers in the organization are the best in the world. I think that's a huge challenge. I personally found that I have this, I call it the cross of the talents that makes a great product manager. So at the top, I would say that there is this almost magical ability to take your talks with users, the user data, the user needs, the business logic, all this. And then through this magic thing, you can create a great product out of this. You communicate this product in weeks at least through wireframes. And I test this by giving people to do wireframes on a certain feature. But I think it's a talent. And if you, you either have it or not, the ability to understand the problem and find a solution where this solution is a product, that's a gift. It's testable. But that is the first thing I look out in product managers, that they have this gift. Then. On the other hand, on the bottom side, if you like, technical understanding. We have to work with software engineers. I don't necessarily think a good product manager has had to learn computer science, nor do I believe they have to have coding in their experience. But at the minimal level, they have to be able to speak what I call technish. If they're not able to communicate, to, to understand the technological issue, if they're not passionate about technology, they will not be able to work very well with software engineers, which are their most important partners. So that's professional-wise, I say. Personality-wise, first of all, most of the product managers don't have the luxury to manage their software engineers, their UX designers, their marketing people, their management. 
So I think that in this specific profession, it's super important that someone will have very, very, very good communication skills. I think that if you don't have them, you won't be able to be a good product manager. So that is something that's very important to me as well. And last but not least, you know, I think product manager is the person responsible eventually for the product to be delivered on time. So you have to be a good project manager as well. So I think these are the four things that create amazing product managers. None of us is perfect. Nobody is perfect in all the four. For me, as an example, I think my weakest link is the project management. I think each of us is better in some sides, but I think you have to be at least good in all the four. And I think you have to be excellent in the first one, in, in the ability to understand the problem and give the right solution as a product, and, and definitely at least good on the other three. So that's an interesting segue into this idea of, you know, interviews as a predictor of a candidate's success, right? How do you take kind of those principles? How do you test for it? How do you structure and conduct your product management interviews to make sure you're getting good candidates? And in essence, so the interviews are effective. So before the interviews, even, I would say that my most effective tool in my arsenal is what I called a test. Every candidate in Wix for product management, by the way, for every profession in Wix, we do a test that simulates their work. So I will basically take a feature that I'm about to develop in the next quarter or two quarters ahead. And I will talk to the candidate during the interview, after the first interview, and I will tell them, you know, here's a feature, that's the problem. Uh, you'll have to interact with Wix product and, and Wix product is free, so it's easy, you know, and learn the Wix product. And then I want you to design me the wireframes for this feature. And that simulates basically, and, and you know, I'm not looking for that to see how they draw wireframes. It's not interesting. They're not designers, but I'm looking to an, Wireframes is a means of communication, the most effective one for products like Wix. And I think you can understand if they had indeed understood the user logic, the user need, the business logic, the emotions of the users around the product, all those things, the data if relevant, and did and were they able to create great product out of that. And I think the best way to predict if they'll be good in their, in their work is to simulate that and the test does it better than any. So that's the most important thing, thing for me when I'm recruiting. The interview is actually more important to me to understand. I talked about the importance of communication skills. So the interview is, I think, a great way to see if the person has good communication skills. And it's also a good, a good place to check their passion towards product. When you talk with someone on product, you can see if they're passionate about what they do or not. That's, that's fairly easy. So this is something the interview gives me as well. And also Wix is a unique chaotic environment and you need someone that's able to embrace such chaotic environment you know independent ownership accountability are great things for some people but not for others and, and that's totally cool they can be great in other environments just won't fit the wix environment and i think that is something that interview helps me too we're not doing one actually we're doing several ones what we call the guild master from the product guild will interview them first they will give them the test as well and then someone from hr will interview them and then the company will interview them the company that they're designated to work at, the head of the company or the head of the product or both. And eventually I still interview every product manager that comes to work for Wix. So they pass for me at the end. Again, to make sure that all these things are happening. Project management skills, technical understanding, you can understand basically from the CV and also from the interview and talking to a person. So this leads to project management skills which are not so easy to identify. I find that talking to your former employers or former partners, if those were entrepreneurs or former investors sometimes, are kind of, and looking at the things they did in the past, helps me to understand their project management abilities. That is not something that's easy to identify in an interview. 
Interview is a tricky place. You know, it's unlike the test where it's very analytical and logical and basically simulates and tells me and I'm very assured about it. I think that interview is not an easy art to master, not an easy thing to teach how to do as well. But I don't know a better way to, to know if the person has the right character for X to identify their communication skills. I, I, I didn't find a better way to interview so far. I know it's questionable and I understand why. People tend in interview to find people that are more similar to themselves. Well, we actually want people that are smarter than us, better than us. And I'm a great believer in diversity, you know. I think that different gender, different origin, people from different geos in the world, if you can, I think they, they add amazing stuff to your product team. Yeah, they, they add like a, a different viewpoint, right? A yeah. different way to look at things. Especially in a company like Wix, where we are in Israel, but Israel is not an important market for us. It's very different than American companies. Mostly in American companies, you start with the US market, right? In Israel, there's no, nowhere to go in the, in the Israeli market. It's 8 million people. It's nothing, right? So we sell in the US and, and our users are in the US, but also in, all, in 190 countries in the world. So having a French person as a product manager gives you a French perspective. It's very good for the French market. Absolutely. So, I mean, Wix is a little different than a lot of companies. Well, let me rephrase that. Wix is a little bit different from the standpoint of who it sells to and the vast number of users and customers, right? Than if you were, yeah. say, selling to the enterprise. One thing is you, you talked about support, how they won't contact support and just cancel, right? We had this discussion before. And the will, so well, let's say some of them will, some of them won't. If they're bothering calling your support, you'll be extremely stupid not to listen to what they say. Yeah, That's absolutely. And, and at the same time, you have such a huge number of users versus, say, an enterprise company. It, yeah. It's not like you can talk to them all. So how do you deal with these characteristics of selling to you know, smaller companies where you have a huge number of companies? Yeah. They might not talk to support, but you should definitely listen to them when they are. There's no way to effectively talk to all of your users from all of your customers, right? How does this affect you as a product person in your team, your team of product managers? Yeah. So let's start actually with the good things about it. You have significant data, that's a gift. I think that the first thing when you, when you work with an audience that is smaller customers, but large amount of customers quantity-wise, is analytical data-oriented approach where you basically start with the data. And you can also validate your, all of your conclusions compared to the data. You know, when you'll go to business school or whatever, I didn't, they'll teach you to segment your users, you know, according to gender or to age or to whatever. I think that, you know, it sounds funny when I say it, but I think I'll say it in the most dumb way I can, but I'm a great believer in it. I think that when you're doing a software product, probably the most important question to ask yourself for users is how much these users understand about computers? You know, my grandfather, my father, my sister, my mother, first office user, one who knows how to use, let's say, Word, knows to use Excel, knows how to do macros, writes code basically, you know, software engineers, and then in the end, you have this genius engineer that, so, you know, through the spectrum, where, are you, where is the slice that your users are, and do you want to go to the right or to the left? So that, I think, is a super important thing to know about users. I talk to users constantly. I made myself a habit. I talk to at least three weeks users every day. And I mostly chat with them through the Facebook Messenger. So they see the pics of my kids, and the pics of me on my motorbike creates a connection and trust, and then I can talk to them. I ask them about their business, about their needs, what they don't like about my product, what they like about my product. I talk a lot to users of the competition. I think it's extremely valuable. I combine this with data work. As an example, I analyze my funnel. 
I'll see where there are drops in my funnel. And then I'll just email 10,000 people who, let's say, did not connect their payment gateway. Tell them, hi, I'm David, I'm the VP product of Wix. Is there any chance I can call you? And then I'll talk to hundreds of them, the ones who are willing to speak with me. I know that the fact they're willing to speak with me kind of makes them a unique group, but still, I learn enormous stuff from that. So I think using them, the fact that there are lots of users, to be a data-oriented type of product manager, talk to users a lot, understand their business, understand their needs, understand their emotions when they interact with your product. There are things I don't believe in, though. I'm a great disbeliever in surveys. I think surveys only echo what you already know and will fail you. You know, there are those classic examples, the survey Nokia did, where it said most of the people prefer a keypad on touchscreen. They did such a survey after the iPhone came out. It's crazy. So I don't believe in surveys. I am also, there, there is an argument inside Wix whether usability testing is good or not. I'm from the disbeliever side. I think that when you bring people to, a, to an environment and they know you're watching them, they want to be smart and they want to be nice. So you're actually getting very, very unrealistic results that will fail you. So yeah, that's in a nutshell. Use the big numbers if you can. It's always better to work with data. And support too, right? I think that that's probably today the number one decision-making help I get. The amount of, let's say this, Wix wrote, did by, by ourselves our support software. It was my first project in Wix. And the reason we did that is because we wanted to create an environment where one, every employee in Wix will be able to answer support calls. And I insist that my product managers will do that. Answer support calls, answer ticket, pick up the phone. Secondly, that I can search my product or feature and according to the tagging the support people did, I can listen to those phone calls and I can read those tickets and I can get analysis of these support calls. I know what are the top feature requests, what are the top problems. And this is also a KPI, how many support calls I get per number of users. It's a good way to know your quality of your product. So I think that, and, and as you said before, you know, most of the users will not call support. Someone is gracious enough to actually call you, did not click those X and closed you up, and was gracious enough to call you and say, I'm not happy with this and that, can you help me? Or more than that, ask you for a feature. If you don't listen to this, analyze this, learn this, if this is not your Bible, then man, you're making a big mistake, I think. So let's turn to the future a little bit. What trends do you see in the next few years that'll affect the craft of product management? Well, I think that I'm very excited about AI. I think amazing things are gonna happen with AI. I think machine learning is gonna bring, you know, we are already, most of us today are product managers that are data-driven. I think that with the ability to use machine learning to analyze the data better, to learn things in advance, I think that that is gonna be a very powerful tool in our arsenal in product management. I don't think it's used enough yet. We are using machine learning in our products, but we are not using machine learning to get to know our users better. And I think that is going to make a lot of difference on our work as product managers in the near years. And, you know, there are exciting things that are happening anyways now, augmented reality and voice control. Uh, I think that in the very near future, we're going to have semi-telepathic interfaces. Like I already saw a product basic that can, you can actually think and things happening on your screens of your mobile or of your Computer, I think this is going to be very exciting and influence our life and our life as product managers. You know, when I joined the industry in the late 90s, I had a feeling that we are actually changing the world for a living. 
I think in the 90s, definitely product managers changed the world for the living, what, what happened with personal computing. And I think in the, in the early 2000s, it happened also with mobile and more and more things became DIY, which was part of that, you know, things that you had to pay to other people lots of money to do in the past, you can now do for free by yourself, everybody. But in a way, I'm feeling that in the last years, many of the basic technology has changed in the same way. Now, you know, I was privileged enough. I spoke last week and I had lunch with Brad Silverman, which is probably the greatest product manager alive these days. Uh, he's the guy responsible for the Internet Explorers, the first ones, the ones who kicked Netscape out before the days of Firefox and, and Chrome. And he's also responsible for Windows 95. You know, we spoke a little bit about the iPhone and this amazing revolution that happened when the iPhone was introduced to our life. You know, a moment where, where actually things are changing, you know. But what happened since then, you know? Okay, we had the first iPhone prototype, then iPhone 3 came, and what changed afterwards? You know, the screen becomes bigger to fit Samsung, okay. And we had Siri, which is now not such a good personal assistant anymore, but what? Nothing changed since iPhone 3, you know? And, and I'm using iPhone X right now, and, and, and where, where is the revolution? And same goes with, you know, our PCs. What is changing my laptop uh, since my classic MacBook Air from 10 years ago, right? Nothing. It's the same MacBook. And, 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 you know, so I don't think, like, you know, we are walking, 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 but the gorge is very near. And I think very soon we're going to fly. Some people are going to fly down. Some people are going to fly up. But, you know, my computer and my phone are the same for too long. I, 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 the revolution comes. Awesome. So wh what's your favorite software product and why is it your favorite? You know, can I, can I pick hardware for a moment? I'm, I, I ride a motorbike and I have a new Scala rider. It's amazing. It's true voice command control that works. I actually ride my motorbike and I pick my music and I can do phone calls. And, uh, you know, there is a, a personal assistant in my in my motorbike helmet. For me, it's like something very cool that happens to me recently. I actually think exciting things are happening in games. Recently, you know, you can see the work they do in games on your phone with data. You know, I think the first one who did it really well was Candy Crush. Everybody was excited by the success and everything. I was amazed. You could see the A-B tests that are going on in the background for every stage. And you still can see that. So that's, that excites me these days. I think that, can I compliment a competitor? I love Shopify. I think they're an amazing company. I compete, but it's great to know that they have a very strong and smart competitor. I think of them as a Wixish company. That's the best compliment I can give them. So I think Shopify is a way to create your own store and your own, your own store is an amazing product for a small person, small business, or a person that wanna start selling online. I think they're great. Yeah, that's the exciting stuff that happens to me recently. So I, I know we've covered a lot today. You know, if you had to summarize your words of wisdom to impart to others in product leadership, what, what would they be? I have no words of wisdom. I think that you should doubt everything I said today. Most of it is probably bullshit. But if to say another piece of bullshit, I, I would say three things to sum up. First, even when you grow up, if you have the ability to work in smaller teams, I think that's, that will give you a huge advantage. Even if you're a CEO, don't decide on everything. Break things to small teams and give those small teams ownership and independence. I think that's a secret for great products. Second thing, learn the data. Be a data-oriented creature. The data is objective, the data is there. Use it smartly and wisely. And don't hesitate to use AI and machine learning through the process as well. I think that's, that, that's a very good thing to do. 
and beyond everything, you know, your users, you work from your users and the, your users are going to teach you product management. That they're the best teachers around. I think those are good words of wisdom, not entirely bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and don't listen to product managers. They'll bullshit you. <laughs> so one final question, and this was a joy. Yeah. Three words to describe yourself, David. Oh, God, who knows? I'm from Ramat Gan, a small city in Israel, uh, and I'm a Ramat Gan patriot. So that, I'm, I'm a simple guy from Ramat Gan who likes technology. That's, that's my summary. I just like this thing. I like technology. I have passion for it. I think that's my secret. I, I, I love it. So we can, we can say simple, passionate technology. Simple guy from Ramat Gan who used to like computers from a very young age. Your average geek. Awesome. Well, this is a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thank you again, David. Cheers. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. Thank you.